Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in World Affairs, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for the day, Sid Schreeder. Today, we'll be talking to Michelle Gordon, researcher at the Hugo Valentin Center in Uppsala University, about a book from Bloomsbury Academic, Extreme Violence and the British Way, Colonial Warfare in Perak, Sierra Leone, and Sudan, uh, out in paperback this April. Michelle Gordon, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, Michelle, I wonder if you could kick this off by telling us a bit about yourself and what got you into history research and writing. Absolutely, thank you. Um, so I came to history, well, I decided to uh, undertake a BA and went for a combined honours in history and politics because I wanted to hedge my bets a bit as to where I was going to go with this. Um I took um, this combined honours at London South Bank University um, before undertaking an MA in modern history at Royal Holloway. Um, uh, I'll speak a bit in a minute about the the kind of research that I did at that time, but um, I then actually took a break after my master's and uh, moved to Germany to learn um, German, which I thought would be useful because I'd developed this interest in, in uh, Holocaust studies. And I, um, yeah, ended up back at Royal Holloway again then in 2011 to begin my uh, thesis, which is, of course, then the the basis upon which the, the book was written. I, um, yeah, just to give some further background then. So during my time at London South Bank, I developed an interest in uh, Holocaust studies specifically and also gender history. And my focus to begin with was actually very much on um, female perpetration of genocide, very specific to the Holocaust, um, really. But once I went to Royal Holloway and I was working with, um, so my supervisor was Professor Dan Stone, who's very renowned Holocaust scholar and also um, introduced me to comparative genocide studies and kind of opened up this whole world of uh, new ways of understanding um, yeah, global history, really, which is uh, what it is. So um, that was really fascinating for me. Um, but still, at that point, I was looking at female perpetrators of the Cambodian genocide, and that was kind of where I was going Um in the time that I was in, in Germany before I started my PhD. Uh, however, um, I saw these new books coming out about colonialism and genocide with Dan Stone, Dirk Moses, etc., and really started to think about actually um, having been educated in the UK, how little I knew about the British Empire, and certainly even less about the violence that was was perpetrated on its behalf and through it. So it was really interesting then for me to see that um, people were kind of making connections between empire and genocide and mass violence and where the UK fits within this. Um, 
So again, it was it was really going to genocide scholars, uh, Mark Levine, Tom Lawson, Donald Bloxham, that were really explore, starting to explore this this topic. And I realized it was really something that I was very interested in, in working on in, in some shape or form. So that was that was it's, it. It's interesting <laughs> that you bring up um, the lack of, I, I guess, coverage of of the connection between empire and violence in in the UK. Um, growing up in in Indian schools and in in Singaporean schools, we got a, we got a, a little taste of it in the sense of like our freedom struggles and stuff like that. But otherwise, it, it was we never really got a sense of imperial violence as a broader phenomenon. So I I wonder, Michelle, could you? Tell us a bit about how you came to work on this question of extreme violence, which sort of takes a central role in your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, the, I mean, I use the term extreme violence. Um, it's taken from Susanna Kuss, and it's really, um, I mean, it, it's tricky because obviously I'm coming from a genocide background, but um, yeah, for reasons I'll discuss later, that wasn't really the focus in terms of the concept that I wanted to use. But the the, the extreme violence, as Susanna Kuss uses it, talks about this idea of violence that goes beyond a military objective. So, I mean, it also means kind of excessive violence, atrocity, those kind of things. And you could use those words. Um, I mean, Kuss discusses this in terms of it being strategically superfluous. And of course, then that leads to some issues. And I know that other scholars have, have had have taken issue with this idea of extreme violence because of this notion of excess. Because of course, when you boil down to it, all colonial violence is excess, all colonialism is excess. So of course, I understand that that's maybe um, a bit contentious, but I like the fact that it kind of encapsulates uh, violence in a way that includes wider destruction. It's not necessarily about the body counts. Um, and it's, yeah, violence in all its forms then. So that's the term that I decided to, to, to use as the focus of the book. Right. And I, I think this idea of um, excess over the stated aim is an important one. Even, even taking in the, the idea that all colonialism and all colonial violence can be excessive in sort of general sense, even to look into... What officials were, what what the official goals were, um, still remains an important um, part of of the history of colonialism and so on. Um, yeah, indeed, and I think that um, we do at certain points have to obviously look at this through the through the eyes of of the perpetrators, and and I think it's. Um, I mean, that is the focus of the book, um, as important as it is to include the uh, agency and viewpoints of the victims, of course, that's not really what this book is doing. What it's doing is trying to look at these British troops as perpetrators of extreme violence. And of course, then we have to think about how they justified that, rationalized that. And and yeah, indeed. So um, it, of course, it's excessive, but the that's within the the context in which we're looking at. So it makes sense. Perhaps it makes sense then to um, talk a little bit about how you came to choose these three cases of Parak, Sierra Leone, and Sudan for your work. Um, Are these exceptional cases in the 19th century? um, Or do they point to wider trends in the development of, of colonial, imperial, or state violence? Um. 
so it's it's I have a, a I think a rather odd answer to this in the sense that um, the case studies obviously at, at some stage they gained a momentum and a reasoning behind my choice of them but initially it was a very arbitrary choice of I really wanted to just take three completely seemingly random cases of British colonial warfare and violence and yeah undertake this comparative study and yeah test the question then um how you know what what are the mechanisms at play here what are the dynamics of violence does it make a difference um geographically or scale uh, all of those kinds of questions so i mean really um i mean perhaps i should now mention what the cases are so that i can explain why i came to them so i mean the first case is the parak war which was um 1875 to 76 uh, on the Malayan Peninsula. And then we have the so-called Hut Tax War in Sierra Leone in 1898, uh, continuing on to 1899. And the Anglo-Egyptian War of Reconquest in Sudan from 1896 to 1899. Um, I mean, one of the parameters was that I was really interested in Dirk Moses's notion of uh, racial century from 1850 to 1950, and of course the increase in the so-called scientific racism. Um, I also was interested in this period because the British by this point, uh, contrary to what a lot of British history tells us, was extremely violent and even genocidal. This, of course, flies in the face of notions of British benevolence, the idea that the British weren't as bad as other empires, and these kind of meaningless tropes, frankly. I mean, this idea that we're supposed to have a pride in the British Empire and, you know, that we should remove this shame. Obviously, my book contradicts those things. And I wanted to be very clear on the fact that, um, I mean, the the fact that there was extreme violence was was. I mean, it's indisputable by the time period that I'm looking at. Of course, we have the um, genocide of violence against Tasmanians under the British government, uh, the Indian uprising of 1857, which is notoriously notoriously violent. Um, So we have these kind of set precedents, which I didn't want to look into, but obviously I find it important within this time frame then what was happening. And indeed, to ask the question that you asked me, are they exceptional? and uh, that that's what I indeed then sought to discover was um, whether extreme violence is exceptional in these in these contexts. That that makes a lot of sense, actually. And it it is really interesting how you um, sort of examine the, the idea of Pax Britannica from a very different perspective. Um, the, the idea being that the 19th century was a century of peace because of, of British dominance. Um, it, it, your work is, is very interesting in how it um, sort of investigates that notion of, of what's going on actually in the colonial empire. Um, perhaps there then it's a, it's a good place to turn to your first case study of the, um, the little war in Parak in 1875. Um, what, what stands out about this war? Um, maybe you could give us maybe a, a brief overview of, of what's going on and then tell us a little bit about what the, the key points that you take away from here. Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'll try and give a brief overview. I obviously want to try and give enough that it's uh, meaningful to people. Um, so basically, uh, Parak, as I said, was uh, is on the Malayan Peninsula. Uh, it was a period, it was um, a focus of non-intervention 
in the 1870s. Um, but we saw this uh, increase of a few disputes going on. There was some uh, violence between different trading groups. Um, there was a succession dispute going on. And the Secretary of State for the Colonies, Lord Kimberley, uh, sent the governor of the Strait Settlements out there to kind of see what was happening. Um, his name, Governor Andrew Clark, he actually ended up then taking matters into his own hands and he created the Pancor engagement in 1874 which sought to bring um, to, to, to solve these issues with the with the local chiefs um, and it was very problematic for for many reasons including the fact that all the chiefs that were involved in this weren't even present so so that was one issue but also it created a British residential system in which the local chiefs uh, had to ask advice of of, of the governor, for example, um, and the sorry, the British resident. And the first British resident of Pirac was James Birch, um, and Birch was um, seeking to uh, put up a proclamation in Pirac, uh, which. Uh, again, shifted the kind of British influence in the area at the behest of the new governor, James um, Javois. And this, um, it was already clear that there were issues locally that they were obviously not happy with these incremental um, increase in uh, British presence. And Birch was actually uh, stabbed to death in the town of Pasir Salag. And um, very quickly, then um, the uh, a local governor from Penang Island um, decided to take a surprise assault on that area, and um, but then that was followed with a an immediate military reversal. So they went in very fast um, to try and find the perpetrators, uh, but seventeen officers and men were killed, and this immediately led to this real sense of colonial insecurity on the ground and this this fear that they were being overrun all of a sudden um, by these so-called fanatical Malays. And I mean, this idea of running amok was was very much present and this fear on the ground then of, of losing control. And this sense of losing control then is informs uh, William Gervoises, the, gov- the new governor, his his um, sense of it basically becomes a war that's not a war because there's barely any resistance, but they 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 go in strong to try and fight any potential resistance, which is a theme that we're kind of identifying throughout the British Empire. This idea of it's not just what they what the natives do; it's what they what they may plan to do and we need to go in with a heavy hand now and Javois was of the opinion that um, annexation was the answer to this rather than the more informal ties that had been the been the intention and uh, and this violence then was disproportionate and um, the ways in which it was conducted included a blockade of the coastline so the Rice was no longer readily available. You had the general population fleeing into the jungle in terror, and they later came out emaciated and obviously in a very bad way. Um, we see numerous villages being destroyed, and the British troops really describe the ways in which they would be met with no opposition, and yet they would still destroy the surrounding area. And actually, the the, the place where Birch was um, 
um, murdered, he uh, the village was repeatedly targeted. So every time villagers tried to rebuild their villages, the British just came back and burnt them down again. So it's these kinds of tactics, looting, obviously, also. Um, and But the British kind of did this in the face of what we may say kind of guerrilla-style tactics from the enemy. So without a clearly defined target for the for the British troops, then they obviously undertook this kind of scorched earth way of trying to trying to suppress the resistance. It's it's quite an interesting story. And um fascinatingly it it stands in contrast to how um British officials in Malaya um think about their own role as as sort of um people who bring development. Development becomes a big um, sort of idea of people like Frank Swettenham later on, who are kind of involved in these in these activities, and so it's quite interesting how the um, the goal of development is sort of contrasted with this f- these forms of collective punishment. Yeah, absolutely, and I think because obviously the whole rationale of this is this notion of a civilizing mission, bringing rule and law and order to a chaotic, savage. You know all of these senses and ideas, and it, obviously, all of the rhetoric flies in the face of the realities on the ground. Of course, it does. So um, it's all about punitive actions, making an example. I mean, teaching them the power of British military might, so that they learn their lesson now, and we can move on and continue with the system that they were. So the residential system, for example, obviously then continued, and the lesson as the British would say, was then learnt by the local populations for the foreseeable. But it is absolutely this contradiction all the time between what they're saying they're doing and the the devastation that's being wrought on the ground. Perhaps this is a a good moment then to transition to your your second case study of the the hut tax war or the so-called hut tax war in Sierra Leone. Um, What can you tell us about this case of extreme violence and, and and how does it sort of compare with the Parak case? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the I mean, the, the Sierra Leone case, I think, is really interesting because you have a situation in which with the Abolition Act and so they create this, you know, obviously Freetown as the crown colony uh, for freed slaves. But then you have the hinterlands of Sierra Leone, which is where I focus on the protectorate that then becomes formed in 1896. Um, and this the violence in Sierra Leone is really quite... There's a really quiet incremental takeover, I would say, with the the increase of British influence. And it includes things like these kind of divide and rule strategies, such as the frontier police, which are taken from other local groups and then they apply pressure on the locals. And within this, um, in the establishment of the protectorate, then the governor, uh, Kaju, introduces this this house tax. Um, And the... The interesting thing is that, the, I mean, the local chiefs try in a myriad of ways to negotiate with the British, but this is all, it just falls on deaf ears because, I mean, aside from anything else, they're just so informed by these kind of racist notions of the fact that you just can't deal with these people. So even when they're trying to deal with them, they're not actually, um, yeah, I mean, they just they just don't listen to their grievances. Um, and actually, it's interesting because, so we had this um, by Beret, who kind of leads this resistance, but his name is initially kind of circulating amongst the British, and they're aware of who he is as a as a warrior and such. 
and they um yeah they hear these kind of rumors going that he's against the tax for example and um yeah the british kind of show in their in their you know their writings that they feel now that force a, se- a sense of for- a show of force is necessary at this stage and that these 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 ringle so-called ringleaders of the resistance to the tax are to be captured dead or alive for example and some of Bybury's uh they were called war boys, but they were throwing stones at the British troops, and then the British troops opened fire on them. Um, but after that, again, Bybury, in this kind of typical context of colonial warfare, undertakes um, tactics of what they called bush warfare, so more guerrilla warfare. Uh, they would stockade the villagers. Uh, they would try and use snipers against the British troops. And the British became so frustrated with this, um, they ended up changing their tactics and creating flying columns, which basically went out and decimated the local area. They targeted by Bure's, uh town, obviously. And yeah, they enthusiastically undertook the destruction of the area, looting, destroying crops, um, you know, this the kind of what we're used to. Um, but I find that the, um, I mean, and this is all very similar to the Prak War in the sense that so much of the, I mean, the violence becomes inevitable because the way that the colon, the colonists deal with the local populations is with this kind of air of arrogance, superiority, and just the, there's no listening, there's no dialogue. So it becomes this almost inevitable, this kind of violence. So we can make direct comparisons between the way James Birch spoke, how Cardew spoke in Sierra Leone, then how Javois was. They all have this undertone of this civilizing mission against these horrible savages. And that informs everything from the very beginning of this colonial relationship before the violence even even breaks, breaks out. Um, and what I find interesting just to mention in the Sierra Leone case is that there was actually an inquiry then as to how this came to pass after the war, which David Chalmers wrote. And it actually gives us some very clear insight into the to the perpetrators, these troops and their rationale. And they're like, yeah, of course, we were just trying to make an example of the villagers. We're trying to intimidate the other the other areas. And they're very clear in that. And the fact they openly state that they looted, they burnt crops, they they admit all these things and Chalmers gives us this insight that I think is so interesting about the destruction of the local area. He tells us how many towns and villages were destroyed, which is 97, uh, covering a population of 44,000. And um, this is the thing that I find so has been so lacking in, in kind of more dated studies of these kind of, yeah, skirmishes, I guess one would say, is that we actually have this, this real sense of the sheer destruction that goes on behind these wars that we often don't get to hear about. Right. The the sort of um, what Ranajit Guha called the prose of counterinsurgency was really sort of apparent in, in, um, in how you were investigating how um, these wars sort of get written of as minor um, skirmishes, as, as sort of small engagements, but then Behind the scenes, there's something quite different taking place. Um, yeah, and the, I wonder. And, in, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but um, I want to kind of highlight this difference between. I mean, we have many kind of military histories of wars like this, and indeed these wars. But the, the, I mean, they're written often in this way of kind of colonial daring do and heroism and obviously that. I mean, it's a very much focused on what did the British troops do and you know, what were their tactics and 
yeah, how did these things come to play? And the, 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 this almost silent suffering of the victims is completely absent. That we, we hear nothing of, of what this actually means on the ground. What did burning these villages mean? And those were the kind of things that I was really trying to, 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 to find and bring out so that we can understand that the British troops actually were doing something that, that, that wasn't, it was beyond war. And that it was this extreme violence then. Um, and you bring up the idea of heroism, and I think this takes us um, very sort of smoothly into the third case study, um, which involves Sudan, the reconquest of Sudan. Um, listeners might be aware of this from sort of the once famous figure that sort of before the war, um, General Charles Gordon, whose um, martyrdom at the Battle of Omdurman is is sort of a a big touchstone in world history, um, even even more so than just British history. I think even American world history students learn about this. Um, so maybe you could tell us a bit more about the reconquest of Sudan. Yeah, I I mean clearly this is the case study that most people will have heard about and been familiar with. I mean not only because of Charles Gordon, but obviously of course also because of Kitchener and his role as the Sadr of the Anglo-Egyptian army. Um, and really the Gordon, so, I mean, uh, to try and explain them, we have the the rise of the Madia and Islamic movement in the 1880s um, that is then battling against Egyptian forces and um, the Egyptian forces, along with the kind of Anglo side, are, are losing this battle and um, General Charles Gordon is then sent in um, and, yeah, he becomes uh, trapped by Mahdist troops and they send a relief organization, uh, a relief mission to then go and try and save him. But of course, he is murdered and decapitated by Mahdist troops before they arrive. And I think it's hard to overestimate um, how important this was in the UK. This was such a sense of humiliation and um, there was a real kind of sense of the need to somehow avenge Gordon. And Kitchener, once we came then to 1896, where there was the decision to try and reconquest Sudan, um, Kitchener is leading this and leading each battle with this notion of remember Gordon. And um, it was, I mean, it's really clear within the, the, the accounts then that this is playing in their minds and really helps to justify what is really uh, certainly the most extreme case in terms of the, the, the variety of methods that are used and the, the scale of the, of the killing that ensues. So it's, it's a really important context. And there are several... Um, I mean, battles over this 1896 to 1898, including the Battle of the Atbara, which happens in April 1898, is a real precursor to what is then uh, the huge finale uh, scale battle of Omdurman on the 2nd of September 1898, um, really on a completely different scale. And what makes this... um, so bloody but also so different to the other two cases is the fact that they the maddest troops tried to fight them on their own terms so in um open battle rather than with guerrilla tactics so it's a real pitched battle and because of the disparities um 
with technology, for example, um, it becomes basically a one-sided massacre, although that's not, it wasn't an inevitability and there were points in that in that battle in which it could have gone a different way but certainly obviously it's very the maxim gun for example is obviously very famous from this battle uh the british were also using uh expanding bullets and lidite shells so we had these very clear uh different technologies which were very specifically made for colonial contexts and the, we see this justification of, of the fact that the, this, this weaponry was deemed necessary because it takes more than an ordinary bullet to defeat a savage. That was explicitly what they were doing. And I mean, just to give the, the figures briefly, maybe of interest then of the of of the um, of the Maddis troops, then there were 16 uh, so 11,000 killed and 16,000 wounded. I mean, it's huge scale. And conversely, on the Anglo-Egyptian side, they lost 48 men with 382 wounded. I mean, that really gives the sense of the disparity. And actually, the wounded figures aren't even accurate because the one of the main things that we really that really stands out in this case is the fact that the Anglo-Egyptian authorities in Kitchener neglected, either neglected the enemy wounded for the most part or were actually bayonetting them. And that became kind of a hallmark of, of this. Uh, actually, it has many hallmarks because we also have the controversy of what happened with the... So the Mahdist himself, um, he died in 1885 actually as well as Gordon. And the Khalifa then took over, but the Mahdist tomb was obviously a sacred, important place for the Madia movement. And Kitchener had it bombed, had his um, uh, body removed, and threw the body in the river, and actually famously kept the skull um, as a kind of mirror image of the decapitation of Gordon. One could say, and this led actually that Kitchener had to then directly apologise to Queen Victoria for undertaking such barbarities but of course these barbarities were completely in step with with the violence that was going on more broadly right and and taking it in the context of all these other wars um like the war in parak the hut tax war in sierra leone um the outstanding nature of the of the quote-unquote barbarity doesn't quite stand out as much it it does fit into a more general pattern like you like you explain in your book um and i wonder maybe taking all three of these cases together if you could comment a bit more on this this idea of excess and the idea of um sort of stated aims versus um practice and um and and how it comes together in these three cases um well, I suppose there, um, before I answer that question, I just want to, you made the point of saying quote unquote, and just to be clear, if I ever say savage or barbaric, I'm clearly using inverted commas. I'm just obviously, for those listening, that that's that's implied. I hope that's clear. Um, so really, I mean, the stated aims, uh, yeah, there's a real contradiction, obviously. I mean, we see in the military reports that there are certain orders that are being stated such as Javoy saying you know you know we're only we're not interested in punishing the innocent but then of course the actual yeah what happens on the ground then contradicts that and he's well aware of the fact that it's being contradicted of course you can't uh, enforce a blockade and burn down villages without endangering the local population that's that's not what's happening um 
And I think there's obviously a lot of euphemisms being used in these reports. There's also a lot of vague language being used, which the, I mean, the private letters that I read from soldiers obviously giving us more detail of what the military reports don't necessarily discuss. But of course, it's also the stated aims then of of London. And um, there's always this kind of tension then between the men on the spot and the periphery and those back in the metropole. And um, that's relevant for really so many ways because alone the, 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 I mean, inherent in the system is the fact that the uh, colonists on the ground invariably end up with far more power than is necessarily intended just because of the communication system. I mean, obviously they were using telegrams. It would take such a long time. And actually half the time, you know, they may not even turn up. So in the case of Parak, for example, um, Javois writes back to Lord Carnarvon asking for extra troops. But at this stage, he doesn't even know what's happened. Uh, so he has to, he knows that Birch has been killed, but he doesn't understand. He didn't. He wanted to, this to remain isolated and not turn into a larger war. So that was the kind of thinking in London. But of course, he has to take on the responsibility then of what happens if he, yeah, misreads the situation and then the British troops are in danger. So he ends up sending an extra two thousand troops, even though he doesn't really know why, and is actually very frustrated and angry with Javois because Javois had kind of advocated this notion of annexing the area, which Carnarvon just thinks he's going off and doing. Basically, this is a little war of annexation, I think he calls it. So that's one example. Um, and yeah, this this there's a real discrepancy between. Um, yeah, the political focus in London oftentimes and the colonists on the on the on the ground and how they want to infiltrate this area and really establish their own power. Um I yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, and I, I really liked how you brought up this um this idea of the man on the spot. Um something that um Historians working in South Asia, especially, but also in in the history of colonialism in Africa and so on, are quite familiar with. Um, could you tell us maybe a little bit more about that that notion of the man on the spot and its sort of prevalence across colonial sort of contexts? Because it's not only a um, a phenomenon of Southeast Asia; it's also um, prevalent in other places, and it, it's tied to this notion of information gap but there's also an ideology behind it correct right um so i would say that the i mean the at least the way my book is focused on it would be to think about the um kind of the this colonial ideology i guess this colonial mindset and of course these these men were the promoters of of this mindset um and of course that follows through to um the prejudices and the kind of superiority with which they they deal with with locals but um i'm sorry I've right just... it's, there's there's really it's not it's not a, a man on the spot that's sort of from the local community it's a no indeed a british sorry, man yes. on the spot yes right? exactly yeah no that's the that's that's um the case and um yeah, they're really the, the the agents of of the colonialism on the ground, but of course they also have the, a military attached to them as well, and that also creates this this discrepancy between the two. And it's also, 
um, I, I point to this in the book, but it's uh, becoming more and more uh, the focus among historians now is this idea as um, uh, this idea of imperial careering then and how these men would kind of go from one place to another and it wasn't yeah that was that that was their lives then moving around these imperial spaces and um really learning on the job and taking these lessons and by lessons i mean um whether it's related to the violence that's being perpetrated or the the mindset that they have or these ideas of what they think that they're learning about indigenous populations um so again this this notion of the kind of the racial prejudices that were um so prominent uh in this time both obviously in the metropole and amongst the these men on the spot then um i'm really fascinated by this uh this notion of the the production of knowledge about colonial places but also about colonial warfare and um sort of the the practice of war in colonial contexts um you talk about um, works of counterinsurgency like Charles Caldwell's Small Wars that in some cases continue to be used by um, tacticians and, and scholars of counterinsurgency. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the production of knowledge about war? Yeah, I mean, uh, Charles Caldwell's book, Small Wars, is really the 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 main text I would say at this time but there are of course others like Gone at Wosley's uh, Soldier's Pocketbook for Field Service for, ex- service, for example um, and of course not only um, British we have German uh, military manuals obviously and I mean this I, my idea of questioning the British way of colonial warfare of course comes from Little Hart's idea of a British way of warfare um, so they're all kind of trying to theorize warfare during this time but of course most of them are focused on european warfare rather than these so-called irregular wars and um i think that's why corwell's is just so prominent because in a way colonial warfare really was learned and experienced on the ground rather than taught it was yeah they had to be adaptable and while they obviously there were some notions of kind of focusing on the kinds of conditions that would be met. Obviously, disease was such an issue for these, uh, for European troops, for example. But um, yeah, Corwell's book is really quite um, interesting in that it really takes an international perspective to all different kinds of irregular warfare. And also, in spite of what may have been said about this notion of British exceptionalism and the idea that they're somehow averse to uh, extreme violence. Will Corwell's book very clearly shows that that isn't the case. I mean, he quite clearly states the fact that you have to destroy your enemy and the ways in which you do that. You have to target those things that are precious to them, for example. And um, yeah, it, it really, but it is really the main text of how we can see in black and white, exactly how this, how they thought about it in this time. I mean, you talk about counterinsurgency, of course, but I mean, that's what we had the small wars, then we had colonial policing, and then it became counterinsurgency. And they're all informed by these same ways of, of thinking about how one defeats uh, indigenous populations, which is why I think as well, we see this consistency from start to finish. I mean, I talk about this idea of the um, 
the colonial relationship being bookended by violence. It starts very violently and it ended very violently, even though, of course, we spent years telling ourselves that decolonization happened quite peacefully across the British Empire. That, of course, isn't true. And then we have the quotidian violence in between. And these things are so consistent over time because, uh, yeah, the theories like Cornwall has were what were being repeated over and over again. So the the dirty wars of decolonization were perfectly in keeping, for example, in Kenya, were perfectly in keeping with what had preceded it. Right. And even in Malaya, to tie back to Indeed, your yeah. original case study about Parak. Yeah. I wonder, exactly. um, you brought up uh, the sort of a comparison between um, German colonial violence um, and British colonial violence, but also inter-European warfare. Um, maybe you could return back to what you were talking about in the beginning about how you moved from the study of um, gender and the genocide, uh, gender genocides and the Holocaust to this question of colonial violence and maybe give our listeners sort of a, a, your, your thoughts on the relationship between these fields of, of historical study, but also of, of how we think about the Holocaust, about genocide and about colonial war. Okay. I have lots of things to say on this, but I'll try and keep it brief. But I want to just um, state beforehand to be clear that uh, while I come from a background of Holocaust and genocide studies, the book is very much focused on the British Empire. It's very much about the extreme violence perpetrated in the British Empire. That being said, um, I think that the British Empire is very significant in thinking about European violence. European, uh, I mean, it was such a huge entity and so very violent that, of course, that has to be relevant to how we think about the development of processes of dynamics of violence. Um, but really, the field, I mean, Hannah Arendt had her famous uh, boomerang thesis and this, this notion of fascism then on European soil being European colonialism come back to Europe. And as scholars have been kind of picking that up over the last... Um, Mm, decade, decade or so, uh, people have really been looking at this this notion of the relationship between uh, colonialism and, and, and genocide, and um, it's um, also the case that uh, people have. I mean, the focus to begin with, I should say, was German colonial violence, because of course we have the Herero and Nama cases of genocide, the first genocide of the. 20th century. So it was logical, of course, that people look to German colonial violence, but then we see this development of a continuity thesis to try and argue direct links. And um, within this discussion, then there were critics saying, well, what we need then is more kind of synchronic uh, comparisons uh, to make these ideas meaningful. So, I mean, of course, if, if, if German colonial violence actually turns out not to be exceptional, exceptional, then that clearly has an implication. And um, I think as well that genocide scholars have, have, have shown that um, genocide is inherently colonial. So if that is the case, then is colonialism inherently genocidal? And this has been taken up by many genocide scholars. And while I'm certainly not arguing my cases to be genocide, they are not. But it, it's, uh, there's clearly a real intimate relationship there between genocide and colonialism, which I think is worth testing. And I think this kind of lens of genocide can help us to see different 
dynamics of violence in colonial contexts that we may otherwise miss. It obviously doesn't explain everything, but it's one way of doing it that I think can be very fruitful and is very fruitful. Um, and again, with the, I mean, with the with the Holocaust, um, actually, it was the case that Hitler dismissed German colonial violence as having failed, and he did look to to other kind of examples, including the British Empire. And for him, there was a there was a logic in both the British Empire and how the Nazis thought about racial hierarchies. So it's interesting these crossovers. Of course, the British Empire does not explain Nazism; it doesn't explain the Holocaust, but they're not as disconnected as maybe people like to think. Right, and and you do a really good job in your book about um, giving giving the readers a sense that people are learning from one another in the. Um, especially on in the side of the empire. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit more about this idea of, um, you know, inter-imperial sort of learning, um, the notion of imperial spaces and, and, and things like that. Yeah, as I said, I mean, we had this kind of imperial careering. People went from one place to the next and learning. And as scholars such as Kim Wagner have shown, the, the Indian uprising of 1857, I think... That was learned by lots of um, European colonists. That was a lesson to learn in terms of how, yeah, how one deals with these issues of like using colonial troops, for example, and yeah, the methods that they use, the and the these logics of extreme violence, even though they're culturally specific to one place, it's still their mindsets are informed by these very kind of large cases. Um, to give a specific example, I just discuss a, a German attache, military attaché um, who wrote a book then on his observations about what was happening in Sudan with regards to the massacring of the enemy wounded, for example, um, the looting. I mean, the war correspondents, for example, were looting the bodies. Um, and yeah, again, I mean, these are the ways in which we can find specific notions of consensus, I guess, between European um, colonists that they, and yeah, that, that they have observers, they're learning from each other. And as Ulrika Lindner has shown that the British Empire, I mean, the Germans were trying to emulate that. Um, so they were very much looking to each other. And not only that, the, the, the British troops themselves then, I mean, I have the example of Carlton, who was both in Sudan and Sierra Leone, and yeah, he's learning these lessons, how one deals uh, with with uh, these with these people and these people for them, regardless of location, really, they fill the same space. They have the same kind of they may have like specific kind of notions of uh, racial characteristics that they, for example, like I said, with the running amok of the Malaysians, for example. But um, as a whole, they see these savage inhabitants that need to be cowered by violence and that Im that that informs across um space and time so they often reflect on witnessing violence and think about the indian uprising for example oh this is how it must have been those those kind of things i mean you see that this this there's this notion of space that goes beyond the specifics of where they are and they of course um, i mean many of these people fought across you know, four or five of these types of wars. And also, as I highlight as well, I mean, the role of Kitchener is is, is important because he um, 
obviously after Sudan and after all of the violence, all of the controversy, he's still promoted. He still paid, I don't know, £30,000, I think it was. And then, of course, he goes on to the Second Anglo-Boer War. And I'm sure people are fairly familiar with what occurs there and these kind of careers of extreme violence repeated over and over again. I mean, these people aren't reprimanded. Presumably, he was actually hired because he was known to be able to take extreme measures. Right. And over time, um, one's reputation for barbarity might turn into a reputation for success in in a different sort of context. Um, While we have just a little bit of time left, I wanted to ask one more question about your case studies um, that just came to me when when you were talking about the use of colonial troops. Um, Could you maybe say like a quick word on on, on the significance of, of colonial troops um, as in peop- quote-unquote natives of the colonies or of different colonies being used as troops in these acts of extreme violence? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a, a very interesting topic and a very important one. Um, I think not least because um, what we try and fight to include in in works of colonial history is this issue of indigenous agency, which of course that speaks to, but it is very much kind of lacking in our histories now. And it's also can be quite difficult to find um, in the so-called colonial archives and trying to get the perspectives of these men can, can be very very difficult to do and clearly more needs to be done I mean there are some examples but we're still always limited by the cases but for example Ronald Lamoth has talked about the um the Sudanese soldiers that fought in the uh Anglo-Egyptian reconquest in Sudan for example um so, I mean, the, the troops, I mean, the Anglo-Egyptian army was made up two thirds of Sudanese and Egyptians. So whilst we have this idea of kind of British perpetration, of course, most troops were actually colonized subjects. But it doesn't change the fact that these these wars were very much British led in that sense. Um, but I, I think, uh, I mean, this also speaks to obviously ideas of like racism, martial, this idea of martial races and for example, the the Sudanese being preferable to the to the Egyptian troops, for example. Um, but I think it's it's interesting how the use of colonial troops is utilized as a form of scapegoating for British perpetrated violence. It's always this we see this argument over and over again that it's um, yeah, it's just you know it's our savage troops. This we can't we can't rein them in, we can't stop this. But of course, they were actually undertaking practices that the British themselves were undertaking. So in the Sudan case, for example, on the night after the Battle of Omdurman, there was uh, lots of um, individual killings going on throughout the night. And we have a British colonel admitting to that privately about how he tried to do away with some of the Sudanese, le- the Mahdist leaders, um, but of course, when you see that in terms of the rhetoric, it's 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 the Sudanese taking revenge. Um, but this was all informed by what was sanctioned by by the British. Um, it's um, so. I mean, it's obviously, like I said, there needs to be a lot more work on this. I just think that it has to be done 
uh, carefully because, I mean, for example, Tanya Burra talks about um, this notion of a kind of Africanization of European tactics. Um, and I think obviously we need to uh, be showing the, the the significance of these colonial troops, but not in a way that kind of replicates almost the arguments of the time that, well, you know, the, the warfare developed this way because the these uh, indigenous troops were involved, if that makes sense, to kind of, again, this kind of scapegoating of, of savage methods or such perceived. And I think it's also important, this notion of civilized warfare and how this just wasn't deemed applicable for uh, colonial contexts. Well, Michelle, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, perhaps we could wrap up with this last question. Um, what are you working on now? Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of sticking with this theme and actually my current project um, is a development really of the of the final chapter of the thesis, which was to look at the, the notions of uh, relations between colonial warfare and intra-European warfare in the 19th century. So um, to think about cases in which um, intra-European warfare was often more violent than we'd like to think, at the same time as people were trying to humanize warfare and talk about this idea of, yeah, human war- humane warfare and progress um, so is, there's a there's a contradiction there. So that's what I'm working on now, and also specifically with the Boxer Rebellion to to again think about these ideas of exceptionalism because there were um, it was a um, I mean there were British Germ- troops there, German troops there. I mean it was a seven state alliance, and how we can look at that in terms of a consensus of violence. So that's what I'm doing at the moment, but I'm also uh, in the process of uh, bringing out a co-edited volume on colonial paradigms of violence, looking at the Holocaust, genocide and mass killing together with Dr. Rachel O'Sullivan um, at the Holocaust Center in, in Munich. Um, so that's really an attempt to bring more of these debates together, bring scholars together that are imperial historians or Holocaust scholars, genocide scholars, and try and find ways that... Um, yeah, that to look at this mass violence and, and colonialism in various ways and what it really can tell us about the dynamics of, of, of mass violence. Michelle Gordon, that sounds fascinating. And I can't wait to read more of your work, including this edited volume that's coming out this year. Um, thank you for being on the show today and talking to us about your book from Bloomsbury Academic, Extreme Violence in the British Way, Colonial Warfare in Perak, Sierra Leone, and Sudan, coming out this April in paperback. I really enjoyed our talk. Take care. Thank you so much.